Well, today is a day in our nation where we recognize fathers. And uh, fathers, we, we do want to say perhaps just from the outset that we are grateful for the role that you play in the lives of your families. It's very easy as a dad, I think, to not always feel the significance that you play in the lives of your kids, right? But be assured that all dads, you play a significant and vital role in the lives of your families and in your kids. And that role is so much more than the stereotypical places our culture has often told about fathers. That is, we do more than just sort of the financial provision and physical protection of our children. It's our presence. It is our gentleness. It is our humility. It is the strength of character about dads that we give to our kids as well. And I want to sort of charge you, if you're a father this morning, to to be a dad that's worth following and worth imitating and worth being. Do not merely just give the right advice and demand the right behaviors, but, but it's important for us as dads to be reminded that we want to to live a life in which our children can say, I, I want to be like my dad one day. Not just they gave me good advice and they told me the right things, but I actually want to be like my dad. But this day too, right, it's very complicated for many of us. Is that some of us on Father's Day, we're reminded that, that, that perhaps we've lost a father and we experience that absence or that sort of void that exists in our lives. Or perhaps we've lost a spouse who was the father of our children. Or maybe we're estranged with our fathers. Perhaps the relationship that you had with your father was a painful one and a complex, difficult one and one that you, you don't really look back at as something that was joyful or happy for you. But we want to recognize right? That even in the messiness that is family life, that is our lives, that God is present. He's present with those who are happy and joyful in the midst of their family lives, and he's present with those who hurt and ache in the midst of their family lives, and God is at work at redeeming all things for all people in the world. We're grateful for our dads. Amen. I want to ask all the dads in the room to stand up. I know this is your favorite activity to engage with the religious activity in the church, but I want to ask all the dads in the room to stand up and I want to just pray a prayer of blessing over you this morning. Father, you are the supreme example of what it means to be a father. We're grateful that you have invited these men into the work and vocation of fatherhood. And we ask that you would bestow upon them wisdom and clarity as they seek to faithfully be dads in their current life stage. May they be present in their families amidst the busyness of life. May they find joy amongst all of the stresses of this life. And may the love for their wives be a blessing to their children. May they find you as they seek your guidance in their work as dads. Bless them, we pray. And all the people of God said over them, amen, amen, and amen. We have a gift for you 
fathers at the end of service that you can receive. Lori had put those together as just a token of our appreciation and gratitude for your vocation as dads amidst our community. If you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 23. But this morning we're introducing a a new sermon series that's going to take us through most of the summer. We're going to be exploring together the most famous sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, as it's commonly referred to. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest teaching that we have of Jesus in any of the four Gospels, and we want to examine it as people who who claim the name of Christ and claim to be the followers of Jesus in the world. And throughout this series, I I want us to just consistently ask us this one question each week that we engage with part of it. And the question is this, what does this tell us about being a follower of Jesus? What does this tell us about being a follower of Jesus? To clarify, what is a follower of Jesus? Right? Well, it's very simple. They are someone who follows Jesus, right? That makes sense. But what does that mean, right? That means the follower of Jesus, they know who he is, they know what he said, they know how he lived. And they know what he asked his followers to do, and they do it. Followers of Jesus know who he is. They know what he said. They know how he lived. They know what he asked his followers to do, and they do it. And the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps, is the most compact, visceral vision of what a follower of Jesus and the life of a follower of Jesus is supposed to look like. It is instructional for us as people who claim to follow Jesus and how we ought to live our lives. But if you are not a follower of Jesus or not yet follower of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, it offers you a vision of what Jesus was all about, what Jesus came to bring into the world. It offers you a sort of insight into who Jesus was, into what he said and how he lived and how he is called the church to live. I have found in my own life that Jesus is perhaps the most compelling figure in human history. And the vision that he has for the world, the most compelling vision for the world that we discover in human history. And what I've discovered in my own ministry and in my own life is that over and over and over again, people are compelled by the person of Jesus and the mission and the teachings of Jesus. It's the followers of Jesus who ruin it for us. And so if you're interested in Jesus and you want to know what Jesus is all about, I want to invite you to come back week after week and discover, at least for these months together, what what this thing that we call Christianity is supposed to be about. And this morning, we're we're not going to delve straight into the Sermon on the Mount, but my hope is that, that we would sort of sort of contextualize or understand or frame the Sermon on the Mount of how it reminds us not just of the story that Jesus is trying to give to his disciples, but that this is the story of the people of God. I want us to understand why this sermon is in the scriptures, how it connects to the Old Testament and what makes it so important for Jesus' followers in 2019. So we will talk about the Old Testament, we will talk about Exodus, we will talk about rockets and blowing things up, we will talk about light and darkness, but 
I want us to understand after all of this just why this stuff that Jesus had to say 2,000 years ago matters for the church today. But let's read together Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 23, and I'm going to go through chapter 5, verse 2. Matthew's gospel reads this way. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Kingdom, key word. Put that in your brain. And healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him, obviously, spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Father, teach us this morning. Teach us, teach me. May we have an awareness of what this thing we call good news, what this thing we call the kingdom of God is all about. We need your grace to understand. So give it to us, please, we ask and we beg. It's your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. There are certain lines, there are certain quotes, there are certain statements in movies and in stories that sort of jump out to us when we think of some of the most famous, famous sentences ever uttered. Let's have a little competition with your neighbors this morning. I don't usually do this, but we're going to have a little bit of engagement to breathe a little bit of life into this sermon. I'm going to say a movie quote, and I want you to see if you can discover where, what movie that, that quote comes from. Okay? There'll be some old movies for some of the more experienced folks among us, and there will be some newer movies for the really young, cool people among us. All right, here we go. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. And I'll try and do the voices. It'll be humiliating, but I'll do the voices. <laughs> well, when they come up. I've got a feeling we aren't in Kansas anymore. Wizard of Oz, right? Wizard of Oz. Okay. How about this one? You're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws. Classic. Classic. Next one. All right, here we go. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Godfather, Marlon Brando. It's like one of my favorite movies. I know it shouldn't be, but I love that movie. Don't fire me. All right, here we go. Life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. All right, there you go. We know this. We know these. You guys are Hollywood experts. You're bad Nazarenes, though, because you weren't really supposed to watch movies until like 96. Some of you guys get that joke. Some of you do not. That's okay. To infinity and beyond. Okay, there you go. Just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Just keep. Finding Nemo. Yes, Ellen. Okay, it was less, less engagement there. And this one, I don't know what the voice is because I never saw the movie, but the line is, and I've said this many times, I volunteer as tribute. Hunger Games. All right, we're, we're aging ourselves now as a congregation. That is the Hunger Games, right? But whether it's because of a dramatic moment or comedic moment, there are certain lines that sort of capture our imagination as people who hear and watch stories. And sometimes I've often wondered 
if the people who are writing those lines knew that that particular line was going to be the one that everybody remembered from their piece of art or this story that they were trying to tell. But we remember famous lines. And those lines, they're, they're forever connected with a particular story, right? When we hear the famous line, we aren't in Kansas anymore, we recall yellow brick roads and a tin man and a lion and a scarecrow and a journey to see the wizard. We might even sing the song, I'm off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz, right? When we hear that line, you're going to need a bigger boat. I don't know if I do that one correct, right? Like, it brings to mind for some of you the first horror film that you ever saw on the scariest fishing trip that Hollywood has ever produced. By the way, when I watched Jaws as a kid, I laughed at how ridiculous it was that you were all scared of that movie. But we... Hear that line, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. And we're reminded of this blue fish that's traveling with his father on a journey to go find his son Nemo, right? These popular quotes remind us of popular stories. And the Sermon on the Mount is certainly Jesus' greatest hits album of quotes. It contains the most often quoted teachings of Jesus, If I ask you to say something that Jesus said, you will likely come back with something that can be found in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon contains the lines, blessed are the poor in spirit. You are the light of the world. Love your enemies. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Seek first the kingdom of God. And the popularity of the Sermon on the Mount isn't just known within Christian circles and religious circles. It's that many of the teachings have found their way into sort of popular culture and are used commonly within our society. This is the sermon in the place where we find Jesus say, turn the other cheek. Judge not, lest you be judged. And perhaps most famously, we find the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do Unto you, but it's a lesser known line in Matthew's gospel that 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 is to call our attention to the story that should come to mind as we read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Is that these lines from the sermon they remind us of the story of Jesus, but if we were to back up just a little bit, just a little bit before the sermon we might see that Matthew is trying to direct our attention not just to the story of Jesus, but to the story of Scripture, to the story that God had long been engaged with in the Bible. You see, in verse 1 of chapter 5, if you have your Bible still open there, Matthew tells us this. He says, Jesus went went up on the mountainside and sat down. As the disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. And it's this throwaway line or this seemingly throwaway line that directs our attention to the story that is supposed to come to mind as we read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's reminding us of a story. He's reminding us of a particular story that we find in the scriptures. He's bringing to mind and calling our attention to the story of the people of God that we find in the book of Exodus. You see, the story of Exodus is one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. In fact, Hollywood made a whole film about it, The Prince of Egypt, which is so historically accurate, not, that you shouldn't just read the story of the Scriptures. The, 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 the other thing is just ridiculous. But, but in this story, in the book of Exodus, 
we discover that the people of God, known as the Israelites, had been enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt. That is generation after generation after generation after generation have only ever known Egypt as their home and slavery as their lot in life. And as the story goes, God raised up a leader, an Israelite man named Moses, who eventually leads the people of God out of Egypt and out of slavery. But Moses was sent to the people not only to lead them out of Egypt and out of slavery, but into the promised land, into a different type of living in the world, into a different kingdom, if you will. And along this journey from Egypt to the promised land, the Israelites, right in the middle, make this critical pit stop at a mountain that we know as Mount Sinai. And it's around this mountain that the people of God gather together as Moses goes up to the mountain, goes up Mount Sinai to receive the law. The law famously contains the Ten Commandments, amongst other instructions for the people of God, as a sort of uh, instruction of how they ought to live once they get into the promised land, right? And the purpose of the law was to teach the people of God a new way of life. They had spent so many generations and so many centuries living in Egypt, living as slaves, that they needed to relearn what it meant to be the people of God. They needed to relearn what it meant to be free people. They needed to relearn, as Exodus says, what it meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They needed to relearn how they were supposed to live as the people of God. As one pastor I've heard say it time and time again, he says the people had gotten out of Egypt but God wanted to get Egypt out of the people. And it's always this a long, difficult task to get Egypt out of the people. And we see how difficult a task this is for the people of God throughout the Old Testament, right? To get the ways of Egypt, to get the ways of the world out of themselves. You see, because throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God time and time and time again living as what I call, we know we should, but kind of lives. We know we should, but kind of people. We know we should eat from other trees in this garden, but that tree's fruit looks so good. We know we should worship God alone, but let's worship this golden calf instead. Total side note, this is, this is one of my most favorite stories in, the, in all of Scripture is Israel's just received the law. They've just received the Ten Commandments. Moses goes back up the mountain to get the rest of the law, and he's going to come back. And in that interim time, the people of God decide, we're going to build a golden calf and worship this God. Even though we just told God he would be our only guy, this is going to be our side God. This is our side chick God, right? And so, but there's this funny interaction where Moses comes down the mountain, and he's like, why did you guys build that golden calf? And Aaron, Moses' brother, who I'm named after, says, well, I don't know what happened. We just threw gold in the fire and this golden calf popped out. And I'm like, yeah, right? We know we should worship God alone, but let's worship this golden calf. We know we should trust God and enter the promised land, but we are scared. We know we should let God be our king, but we want a king like all of the other nations around us. I know I should have a pure heart, but I'm really attracted to Bathsheba. 
We know we should care for orphans and widows, but we much rather be rich off of their backs. We know that we should live as the people of God, but we really like living as people in the world. We know we should, but. We know we should, but. We know we should, but. This is the story of God's people in the Old Testament. And see, the the problem is that the law wasn't merely intended as a test that the people of God were supposed to pass in order not to anger God. You can go into the promised land so as long as you obey all of my commandments and don't make me upset. This is not the story that the scriptures are telling. You see, the law was intended. It was given to the people of God, one, so that they could have full life, that they can live as they were created to live. And in so doing is that by living this way, they would reveal the character of God and be a blessing to the world. This is why the law is given, to reveal God's character and to be the people through whom God was going to bless the world. And the unfortunate consequence of living we know we should but kind of lives is that it robs the people of God from being a blessing in the world and it robs the world from seeing the character of God. And this sadly is the story of God's people. And it's the story Matthew begins to call our attention to just as he's gonna share the Sermon on the Mount with us. You see, in Matthew's gospel, what we discover is that God has sent a leader. God has sent Jesus, a Moses figure, if you will, into the world in order to free the world from its slavery, not in Egypt, but of sin. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, Matthew makes a pit stop at a mountain where Jesus gathers the disciples around the mountain. He ascends up to the top of the mountain and he's going to teach them this new way of living in the world. The Sermon on the Mount, this is important for you to understand, is Jesus' vision for the life of the people of God. This is the vision of what it looks like to be people who live truly free lives. It's the vision of what it looks like to be transformed by the, from the patterns of this world and conformed to the will of God. It's, it's a vision of life of what followers of Jesus, what disciples of Jesus are supposed to look like as they pursue him in faithful relationship. And that... It's a sort of gospel invitation, the good news about the kingdom of God that Matthew says there earlier in chapter four. He says, the gospel invitation is to live into the ways of God, not the ways of the world. It's to live into the kingdom of God, we might say, not into the kingdoms of this world. And what what we so often forget as Jesus followers is that the ways of the world have shaped our hearts. And for some of us, this has been happening generation after generation after generation. We've been shaped by patterns and customs and cultures of the world, not by the kingdom of God. We've been shaped by individualism, the story that I am the center of the universe. We've been shaped by consumerism, the story that you are what you own, And so I have to have the 
newest phone and the newest clothes and the newest car and the latest this and the latest that because that determines how important or how valuable I am. We've been shaped by nationalism, the story that my nation is God's nation. We've been shaped by moral relativism, the story that we can't really know what is universally good. And so if that's good for you, then that's good for you. But this is good for me, and this is good for me. We've been shaped by sort of new age mindset that we are gods, and everyone around us is here really to serve us and to serve me because I'm entitled to all of that service. We've been shaped by hedonism in the story that whatever brings us pleasure, we should do that thing. You do you. Whatever makes you feel good, you have to pursue that thing. We have been shaped by the ways and practices and customs of the world. And the gospel invitation is an invitation to move out of this way of living in the world and into the ways of God. See, if you're in here and you don't follow Jesus and you want to discover what this life is all about, you're trying to discover a life that is different from the one that you live, the Sermon on the Mount gives us the compelling vision of what you were created, how you were created to live. And it's not according to the customs and patterns of the world. It's according to the teachings and mission and person of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, the opportunity that is before us is that as we live into the ways of God, as we live into the kingdom of God, our lives reveal God's character and they reveal God's vision for the world. That as we follow Jesus, as his followers, we reveal to the world what God is like and what God's dream and, dreams and hopes are for the world. When I, was in, when I was in eighth grade, I took a class where we studied the scientific concepts like motion, force, acceleration, thrust, lift, drag, et cetera, et cetera, these introductory sort of physical principles. To be honest, I couldn't tell you much of the content of any of my other classes in eighth grade, but I remember this particular class one, because my teacher was a former Miss California <laughs> pageant winner. So that helps steer that into an eighth grade's mind. But, but that's not the main reason. The main reason, <laughs> the Miss Keller, she was so cool. The main reason, the main reason was that in this class, we would study these concepts, these scientific concepts, in order to design and build our own custom-made rocket. It was a rocketry class. It was awesome. The class was designed so that we would learn about these principles in the first sort of half of the semester. And the, the second half of the semester, we would get to build a rocket. And there's nothing more exciting, I don't think, to an eighth grade boy than to be able to build something that you're going to either blow up or launch into the sky. And as a final project for the class, we would all go out to the field, the baseball field, and we'd launch our rockets up into the sky. And no doubt, the highlight of the class was my friend Chris, his rocket was launched and at that sort of apex of the launch, a parachute's supposed to pop out and kind of let it slowly drift back down to the earth. But the wind caught his as the parachute popped out and it pushed it over <laughs> into a street and a car ran it over and we thought it was the most awesome thing ever and that he deserved to fail. But, but there's something in eighth grade about engaging material 
that wasn't just about a lecture. They weren't just telling me about it, but I got to see all of it in action. I got to build it. There's something compelling about that. And this is supposed to be true for the Christian life. Our witness in the world is best expressed by a community that embodies the way of life of Jesus. Not a community who simply brings them to hear their preacher talk about the way of Jesus. So often we think of living differently from the world as this sort of withdraw from the world. The world is bad and we have to get away from it, right? Or we think of living differently from the world because the world is really evil and we're not really evil people. We're really good people and so we're going to live our life over here, whatever it is. But living different from the world and living into the kingdom of God, it isn't about withdrawing from the world and it isn't about condemning the world. It should thrust us into culture. It should thrust us into the world. As Jesus says, what it's like to be a holy people, different people, to live this way of life, of following me. It's like being light in the midst of darkness. Is that you live in a world and nobody has a clue of how it is they were designed or created to live. And as you, church, live into the world, into this new way of living, you reveal to the world how it is they were designed and created to live, how it is that they can find full life, perhaps for the first time. We have to, as a church, how do I say this? I was thinking about this this week. Okay, I'm going off script. This never goes well. I was thinking about it, I was thinking about it this way this week. This is a really extreme question. Does it matter to you, church, if, <laughs> if my life is one that is lived with integrity? Does it matter to you if I, as your pastor, am a truth-telling person? Does it matter to you that I'm faithful to my wife? Does it matter to you that you could trust me to steward finance as well and not just use them for my own gain? Like, if I didn't do any of those things as your pastor, you would, what, fire me, right? If you, were, if you were like you as our pastor, you don't tell the truth, you're a liar, you aren't faithful to your wife, you can't be trusted with finances, your life looks nothing like the life of Jesus, you would come in and you'd be like, I don't want to listen to you preach, I don't want to listen to you teach, I don't really care what you have to say because you don't look like the message. And the problem with the church in 2019 is so many of us don't look like the Sermon on the Mount as a church. The reason why our message doesn't resonate with the world is because we don't look like our message. And the invitation to us as a church and the gospel invitation and call and demand on our lives as a church is that we take the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus seriously. That we actually care about the poor that we actually live lives of integrity, that we aren't just pursuing materialism and wealth and all these types of things. It's that our life looks like Jesus. And it's only then, it's only then that our message has any sort of punch or bite to it. And so as we approach this sermon series, discovering what the life of Jesus followers is supposed to look like, I want us to have two 
things at the forefront of our minds that we need to ask ourselves every single week or make a priority. And the first is this, that we need to have a focus on obedient faith. We need to have a focus on obedient faith. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, teach these new disciples as you make them to obey all the commands I have given you. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. What Jesus does not say to his disciples is, instruct new disciples all of the doctrine I have given you. He doesn't say, teach these new disciples all the beliefs they need to have in order to say that they're Christians. He does not say, teach these new disciples how to do church in all the appropriate ways. Don't bring coffee into the sanctuary, right? What he commands the apostles is to teach new disciples, new followers of Jesus to obey his commands. Obey his commands. You might say Jesus instructs us to live, we know we should sow kind of lives. We know we should care for the poor, so. We know we should be less anxious, so. We know we should be peacemakers, so. We know we should be thirsting for righteousness, so. We know that we should love our enemies, so. Kind of people. Is that faith is never about the intellectual belief of a person. It's about the living trust that we have in Jesus. But there's a second thing that I want us to be reminded of. Is we need to take the long road to mature faith. We need to take the long road to mature faith. There's no quick way to the life-transforming work of God. God has consistently transformed his people by their faithful response to him over time. I love the way Dallas Willard puts it. Senior Bullet says, God transforms us through a vision, our intention, and the means God provides. God transforms us through a vision, our intention, and the means God provides. That is this. We capture the vision of life that Jesus is inviting us into. We make the choice, I want that life. I want to live that way. And through the means or the spiritual disciplines that we have, God begins to reshape our hearts. I'll take one second to point something out. In your, your sermon notes there, there is, I have, I've written down scriptures for you to read daily. This is not a homework assignment. It is merely an invitation. That one of the ways that we begin to mature our faith and take that long road to maturity of faith is by diving deep into God's word and engaging it on a regular basis. And as we do this, right, the word of God comes alive in our lives and begins to reshape our hearts to get Egypt and the world out of us, to get the life and the kingdom of God inside of us. What might happen in our church if we caught Jesus' vision for our lives? What if we set our will to obedience to Jesus and by his grace, God changed us into the people of God? One of the things that I always like fear in preaching, side note, is I always fear that I'm like shaking the church like, don't we get it? We gotta follow Jesus, right? why aren't we doing this, right? And becomes this sort of frustrating, sort of cynical thing 
And I don't want to be that way. Uh, The note that I want to leave you on is this, is that our life together as a church and our faithfulness to follow Jesus can reveal the character of God in the world and can perhaps point to a different way of living in the world that people in our community have never seen or imagined before. There is beauty in the life of holiness we're invited to live into. It is the best kind of life. It is the life that you were created to live. And I wonder, I just always wonder how lives might be changed if the people of God and the followers of Jesus live that way. How cool would that be? Father, we are humbled that you beckon us to come and to follow you, Jesus. And for so many of us, our our hearts clamor and desire to be the type of people that you've called us to be. And so we ask God that by your grace, by your grace and grace alone, that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to be the people and the church and the community that represent you well in the world. That people might not simply hear us, but they might just look at our lives and simply by that act of paying attention to our lives, see you. And so we ask God that you would do this work in us in Ventura, California in 2019. May the world see you in us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.